I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 12. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you're wondering what the meaning of that parable is, uh, join the club. There's been more writing on that parable than any other of the Lord's parables. Um, It's one of the most opaque. Uh, I've studied it for many years, and I'm convinced that the meaning, if you boil it all down, is give more money to the poor. So if you want to understand how to get that meaning out of that parable, ask me at coffee hour, um, because it's not where I want to speak this morning. Um, There are passages in the Bible that we read, and it's like, whoa. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 is one of those. It comes up every three years in the lectionary cycle. And I believe the Lord wanted me to preach about it this morning. So that's where we're going to land instead of the gospel. So um, two weeks ago, we read Philemon. And I spoke about how the deep message of Philemon informs how Christian men should carry themselves in marriage. How Christian faith and Christian identity transforms hierarchical relationships from the inside out, ultimately um, overthrowing them as the world understands them. Today, I'd like to speak about the very controversial topic of women and their role in the church. But in order to do this with integrity, um, I have to establish two principles, and you have to at least provisionally agree with me that these principles are good, or else the sermon won't make any sense. So the first is sort of the simple confession of faith that What the Bible commands, we obey, right? Are you with me in that principle at least? You need to be. That's how the Christian life is lived, right? That there's much in the Bible. Every one of us has many, many verses that we don't like. That our life would be much more enjoyable and comfortable if they weren't in there. But part of Christian obedience and submission is to say, Lord, you've communicated it, I'll obey it, right? It's actually a handing over of your own will and sort of perception of truth to what God has revealed to be the case. So that's principle number one. Are are you with me? Is that an okay principle to work on from a sermon? Good. It's simple enough um, when the command is clear. Uh, Like, for instance, the command for modesty. Again, one of those ones where we hear, we're like, oh, this is kind of a strange thing to be listening to. But the Bible's very clear. Christian women dress modestly. That's just a simple command. And so I encourage you to remember that. It's slightly more complicated when we turn to the topic of the role of women in the church. And this um, leads to the second principle I want to establish, that if and when the Bible offers multiple words, multiple voices on a specific topic, it's the Christian reader's job to bring those notes into harmony, right? To do the work of faith and say, God, I believe you are not a God of confusion, but a God of order. So I know in faith that these multiple voices need to fit together, help me to harmonize them. Uh, And and, and holding the composite witness of Scripture. So sometimes just the act of discerning what has God commanded takes that work of bringing the multiple voices together. So that we can live in a phrase I love, in the center of biblical tension. That was a phrase coined by a Bible professor in Columbia, South Carolina, a few decades ago. And I think it's so good because what we want, like because we all have an inner Pharisee, is the black and white line where you can say, I'm in or I'm out. And I think actually Christian discipleship thrives in the center of biblical tension, that there are truths like, um, I mean, when we talk about money, 
right? That you have on the one hand, go sell all you have. On the other, he who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. How do those things fit together? Well, discipleship lives in the center of biblical tension between those two truths. So those are the two principles. What the Bible says we obey, yep. And when the Bible has multiple witnesses, we seek to harmonize them and understand how they fit together. Are you, do you, are you okay with the second principle too? Okay, great. So with these principles in hand, now let's turn to the role of women in the church about which the Bible says lots of things. So first of all, the, uh, the very sort of first uh, and priority thing that the Bible says about women in the church is that all women are every bit as equal as all men in the church of Christ. That's the, uh, the profound message of Galatians 3.28. In Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. Right? That there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And this is actually sort of stands in some contrast to the old covenant, that when the synagogue met in Jesus' time, before Jesus had come, do you know who would sit in the best seats in the front? The men. And who sat in the back? The women with the Gentile and the Gentile converts. They were actually sort of spatially made second-class citizens. In the church, founded on the um, equalifying, if that's a word, um, message of the gospel, rearranged the furniture, and men and women, actually in the earliest church, I don't know if you knew this, but men would sit on one side and women would sit on the other side. Even married couples, you'd kind of separate for church, um, but that everyone was equally close to the front. You know, it was right, taking that synagogue seating and saying, no, 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 men and women, in Christ there is no male or female. And they sat equally. We uh, see this with the entrance rites into the people of God. Under the old covenant, only men could receive the sort of ritual entrance of circumcision. Under the new covenant, men and women are baptized into Christ Jesus and made members of his body. All women are equal to men as members of the church. And sort of following right on the heels of this, all women are called to the same depths of discipleship as men in the church. It's actually worth noting that in this sort of um, squirmy passage of 1 Timothy uh, 2 verse 12, the only command verb, like because you remember English class, you learn some verbs are infinitives and some are passive verbs and some are command, you know, imperatives. There's one imperative verb in that whole um, little section there, and it's let them learn. It's a third person indicative. It's a command. Let them learn. Let them be disciples, which again in a first century is somewhat surprising in a Jewish landscape. Um, rabbis only had male students, but what does Jesus do in his ministry but invites Mary of Bethany to sit at his feet like a rabbi would take a student, right? To say, yes, you are welcome to know every bit of the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God, men and women alike. Resulting from this, um, all men and women are equal. All men and women are called to the same depth of discipleship. Um, all women are called, like the whole church, to become saints. And I love that in the history of the church, which we relish as Anglicans, there are thousands of radiant women saints who testify that the transforming power of the Spirit um, takes a unique and wonderful shape in the life of women in particular. All women are called to sainthood. On this foundation, also, it's the case that women and I'm not speaking in the abstract, I want to speak very clearly to you women who have come to church this morning. Um, women 
are called by God to have ministry, a ministry in his church. Ministry that God himself calls you to. And the Bible gives us many and varied examples of what this ministry looks like. And if we see in the New Testament there's a ministry that's recorded, that's intended to be normative. The New Testament is our constitution, right? If it's there in the church right away, it's supposed to be there in the church for the future, the church of today. So just to kind of go down the the rap sheet of awesome women ministers in the New Testament. We have Priscilla in the book of Acts, who together with her husband Aquila, um, instructed Apollos, one of the greatest preachers of the early church, actually had to kind of fill him in and correct him when he was wrong. It's also interesting that when she's listed with Aquila, her name is mentioned first, which was a custom in the first century that you kind of listed the person who's kind of the, the important player in a pair, you list their name first. She was, I think, the better teacher between, between herself and Aquila. When we translate that into today's church landscape, I think that means unequivocally that women can be small group leaders. I think that's what Priscilla and Aquila were. They had a house group and they instructed Apollos. We have Junia mentioned in Romans 16 as famous among the apostolic band, probably as an encourager and a patron of the apostles' ministry. Um, In 1 Corinthians 10, we see women praying and prophesying in the mixed congregation of men and women. Now, praying, we understand, right? We know what praying is. Prophesying is a little bit more one of those things like, wait, is that what the Pentecostals do? Um, It's actually something the church has always done, always does. Prophecy in the New Testament, it's a composite of of moral rebuke, of occasional teaching, of spiritual guidance, and sometimes discerning the future, right? By the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit saying, this is what's going to come to us one way or another. So we see women prophesying and praying. When we translate that into today's terms, I think that means very clearly that women can lead prayers in the church, that women can be spiritual guides and counselors that women can be occasional teachers teaching the truth of God in the church. The ministry of women in the church is of such gravity to St. Paul that in Philippians 4, when he references two women, Euodia and Syntyche, he calls them his fellow laborers in the gospel. Not his accomplices or his subordinates or his helpers, his fellow laborers of the gospel. We encounter one such fellow laborer in the person of Phoebe, who is a deaconess who's mentioned in Romans as the deliverer of the letter to the Romans. Arguably the most important theological text in the New Testament, hand-delivered by the deaconess Phoebe. And if the church in Rome wanted to clarify something that Paul had written, who would they ask but the person who had hand-delivered the letter from Paul? Probably Phoebe, right? Phoebe functioning as a deaconess. Okay, so. I'm making a composite case, right? I'm trying to pull together the multiple voices of what the scriptures say. The Bible tells us that women are called by God to a place of equal standing in his church and that they can be called to exercise the vital ministries of prophecy, prayer, spiritual direction, occasional teaching, small group leadership, and deaconess. So that's vital information if we want to understand what the Bible is saying, right? You with me so far? Okay. It's as well as these witnesses that we have 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, which reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. If we didn't have that 
composite witness. You could see how it would be very easy. If we had just that verse, you could say, well, women should just do absolutely nothing in church. If you had just that verse, right? You could over-interpret it, over-apply it. But when we hold it in harmony with the rest of the New Testament witness, what we see is that the command of 1 Timothy 2 is very definite and very defined. I would sum it up like this to theologically interpret. According to 1 Timothy 2, women are not permitted to hold an authoritative teaching position in a mixed congregation of men and women. That's a, a intentionally technical. Um, not to say that women can't teach, but they can't have the, the authoritative teaching position. And I say mixed congregation because there are monasteries all over the world right now, women, uh, convents of women who have an abbess who is their leader, who is their authoritative teacher because it's not a mixed congregation. So that's a very definite thing. Women are not permitted to hold an authoritative teaching position in a mixed congregation. That's the teaching of 1 Timothy 2. To confess, this makes me squirm, right? I don't like hearing this teaching out of the gate. It rubs me in all the weird ways of like, oh man, like this just sounds so strange. But because I believe the Bible and doing careful interpretation, I force myself to say, Lord, if that's your teaching, I submit to it. I'll obey that. It's un as odd as it sounds to the world today, as unpopular as it may be, um, I'm willing to submit to that teaching. And to submit to it in that sort of very defined way, because it can't mean teaching at all, because we see Priscilla with Aquila teaching Apollos. We see women teaching women in Titus. We see women prophesying in 1 Corinthians 10. We have to hold these things in tension and live in the church in the center of biblical tension. And that's why sometimes there's some disagreements in the church in different times about what exactly you know, women can do, right? Because trying to figure out how do we faithfully hold that center line. When we translate this teaching into today's church, the roles and titles, I believe, and I say I believe, because here I recognize that I'm one interpreter of scripture. Um, that it's important that you know that you believe what God says through his word. And I want to be clear that I believe with all my heart this is what it says. But I don't presume to be the sort of infallible pope, if that, as it were. First Timothy 2, I believe, prohibits women from being rectors of congregations. That's the Anglican word for a senior pastor. And I, I think almost certainly also that women cannot be ordained to the priesthood. Um, there are good Anglicans, Anglicans who I admire and who I think actually love the Bible more than I do even, some of them, who, who would disagree with me on this. And I want you to know that. Again, I'm, I'm not the Pope. We don't have a Pope as Anglicans, and I'm glad for that fact. I've been investigating this question for 10 years rigorously, reading as much as I can, because I realize it's such a difficult topic. And this is the conclusion I've come to. I think it's the most clear conclusion that's available. I think that priesthood and authoritative teaching in the church um, are important ministries, but it's only the flesh that would elevate them to be somehow more important than the others. That's the arch message of 1 Corinthians 12, that no member of the body, no function in the body, no role in the body is of greater importance than the other. Can the eye say to the hand, because I'm not a hand? No. Right? Now, in our flesh, we're inclined to say, well, Ben gets to wear the fancy garments. Maybe that's a really special thing. There is something special to it, but it's not more important. 
the Apostle Paul, I mean, the greatest minister that ever was in the history of the church, looked the women in the eye next to him and said, you're my fellow workers in the gospel. He recognized that all the different giftings and apportions and roles in the church are to work collaboratively, building up the body of Christ. The body is made of many members, none is greater than the other. So um, I want to embody the spirit of St. Paul, and while submitting to what I think is the, I believe to be the earnest teaching of 1 Timothy 2.12, to say to all you women in the church who minister and will be ministers in years to come, whom God has gifted to be leaders and teachers and counselors and spiritual guides and prophets and prayers, you are my fellow laborers in the gospel. And I believe that if a church doesn't allow these things, it's being less than biblical, right? Sometimes we sort of want to equate that whoever's the most conservative, they must be the most biblical. It's actually not the case. The Bible lives in the center of biblical tension. And I am so grateful that our Anglican structures haven't boxed these things away. And I look forward in the years to come to laboring shoulder to shoulder with you men in the ministries God's blessed you to do and with you women in the ministries that God has blessed you to do, that together we would all mutually be serving and encouraging each other, growing us up, to use the biblical language, into the full stature of Christ Jesus. We do that work in a way that glorifies God. And and let me be really clear. You leaders of chapters, altar servers, lectors, teachers, children's ministers, nursery workers, hospitality coordinators, you and my fellow laborers in the gospel. In the gospel, the same gospel. And I think we glorify God the most when we carry out these ministries in the way that he's prescribed and defined and given to us. Honoring that in the same way he made us different biologically. That he's made us different by nature as men and women for the good of mankind. And he's given us different kinds of gifts as men and women in the midst of the congregation to build up his bride whom he loves. Amen.